0: We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events. And we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for. The reason why you subscribed in the first place. To hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which may be a zero, in which case, ouch, but okay. If you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more, more importantly, thank you for listening. From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today, Jakeen Fox
1: returns to the show. I saw the energy that they created around critical race theory and how they created a conversation that says, you know, this doesn't belong in elementary school. This just belongs in college. And we ran with that for some reason. No, this conversation actually does belong in elementary school because we need to understand how systems support privileged people as early as possible and create real curriculum that understands people's education levels and can grow as they grow. But instead, we were defending their position in our statements. And I'm I'm like, no, we should actually tell them how important this conversation is as early as possible. We discussed Nebraska's current political climate, his
0: vision for romantic activism, and how strategic shifts in organizing can reshape the future. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. If you've been listening to this show for a while, you've heard conversations with a lot of people who have run for office. But Nebraska, just like the country at large, often instead re-elects incumbents. And though I've heard many visions for a significantly changed Nebraska and country, the truth is that things usually look fairly similar from one year to the next. So why is that? My guest today is Jakeen Fox, who is now referring to himself as a romantic activist. He's been on the show before, and he's been organizing and working in the community for a long time now. And so today, we discuss what the state of Nebraska politics is, why that might be, and how he sees a way out of the current stasis and disconnection that he sees a lot of people feeling. Here is our conversation. At the time of recording this, uh, Governor Ricketts is hoping to become the next uh, Nebraska senator. And he'd be replacing ben, Senator Ben Sass, who is decided the holding office essentially isn't worth his time. Uh, <laughs> and Ricketts, according to the Lincoln Journal-Star, has donated more than $100,000 of his own money that he has directly to uh, Governor-elect Pillen's campaign when they were doing the primary. And he also had another uh, $1.3 million that he gave to the PAC Conservative Nebraska, which ran a barrage of attack ads against Charles Herbster mm-hmm. to help ensure Pillen's victory. And so basically where I'm going with, his, with this is that now nobody seems to be expecting much other than Pillen got a lot from Ricketts and now Ricketts potentially gets a favor repaid by becoming a senator. And so I know I saw you uh, tweet about this this morning, but the Journal-Star had tweeted that, quote, critics, including some within the GOP, say it's a bad look that will give voters the impression that wealthy, powerful men are dictating government control. <laughs> so I want to start with this because I think it opens up a few doors we can go down. Like, how does power operate in Nebraska? How does the media cover it? And then how do citizens accept that wielding of power? So maybe we can just go down that list. So let's start with that first idea, this this impression that wealthy, powerful people are dictating the government. Is that an impression? Is that the status <laughs> quo? What's your take?
1: Yeah, I just think it's so, it's so mind-boggling that, after everything that we experienced with Trump, like the media still plays this version of a non-biased kind of argument or conversation that we can't just acknowledge things as they are. They wouldn't call Trump a liar until a year later when the damage had already been done. And here we are again with an opportunity to call out what we know to be true, that this position is bought and paid for by governor Ricketts. um, And that this was an obvious plan. It's, it's, Clear. It's cut and dry to anyone that um, has a bone of honesty (laughs) in their body. And so I think when we think about like the institutions, not only in Nebraska, but across America and the reliability and the and the data that we see that that demonstrates how the average person continues to lose trust in our, you know, historic institutions, this is why, because we can't have an honest conversation. um, And when we think about ourselves as non-biased entities, that always supports the status quo. There's no way to be unbiased in this system, in these, in this government, in, in these conversations when it comes to white supremacy and, and how money plays into power. Like there's no way to be unbiased that doesn't favor, um, the oppressors, and so this is a clear example of something that we could demonstrate plain as Day through all of the um, all of the funding, you know, following the money that this was strategic and it's going to work because our institutions that might have some legitimacy and power continue to betray the public, um, and so that's the status quo for Nebraska specifically and for our Nebraska GOP. We know, um, and I it's disheartening to say the least <laughs> you know to put it nicely um and our job as you know activists or advocates is to see the the distrust happening to see the the loss of trust in our institutions and to somehow pick that back up um and and place that in each other um and it's a, it's a tall order because so often people are let down and promises are broken. Um, and it's our job to restore that in, in whatever fantastical way we can try to devise. But um, shout out to, you know, a plan well made. You know, I can't be mad at that. Like, it, it is going to work. Um, and that's unfortunate for for everyone that will be his constituents again.
0: Well, it's interesting because we we have culturally this idea you know we have like our Woodward and Bernstein heroic and romantic notion that like the journalists can really do something to take down powerful people when they make bad decisions, right that somehow shining a light on something has an impact and it has uh, you know like whether it leads to just more scrutiny, whether it leads to people doing something different, voting for somebody different, that it has a tangible impact, and that that should potentially scare bad actors. I don't know that that really exists at this point. Do you think it
1: does? No, I don't think the the media is our accountability measure anymore. Um, and I am a fan of media and journalists and used to believe about their power to defend democracy. And, um, you know, it, it just hasn't happened in recent history where they defended us in a way that allowed us to uh, proactively, like, mitigate harm. Um, they are on the back end, and we and we understand again money and power, how all those things are connected. We know that Lee Enterprises may be a conservative, you know, is a conservative entity and may not be allowing people to write the way that they want to write. That's some of the conversation or rumors or gossip that we've heard. Um, but again, as an advocate, like our job is to say, so what? You know, like okay, they they said you can't do it. Figure out a way to do it, like be the truth you know what i mean like i feel like our muscle for that um has just gone to the wayside i remember when people used to break rules for the good of other people um and i feel like we're just so fearful now um so i respect journalists and and the work that they do and the level of intelligence and and um go-getterness that it takes to do that job um but i wish it was well placed
0: yeah well the other thing is i mean in theory a jur- in, in the romantic idea that the journalist shines a light on it, then the people get outraged, and that outrage leads to some kind of tangible movement. At this point, I don't know that a whole lot of people are looking at what Ricketts is doing with the Senate seat, for example. And it doesn't seem like there's like a a big outrage. There's not a movement of outrage. There's more of just kind of like this sigh of like, well, yeah, it's
1: just kind of a thing he does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, think of what it took for people to care about like someone being shot in the street. Like it takes a lot to generate an outrage in a society that has been so desensitized to harm um and has kind of like made it a staple as part of the game like and part of my thought process on this is that no like you it does not have to be that way you can literally do something about this but there's such a long road to to that um and things that seem innocuous um um, like an, another Republican being in in this seat um, when the seat was always going to be Republican, no matter what, may not seem like a huge deal to people. But I think it's always decontextualized. And I think that's our job as truth tellers is to always bring something into context, like the decisions that he will make in that seat, like have a context and have real people that are harmed by it. And we know from his time in the governor's seat that he will harm a vulnerable people. Um, but the outrage, I don't know what it takes for people to be outraged anymore. I think even when, um, we were doing justice for James, it was a lot of performance. Like, you know, I'm doing this because it will look bad if I don't. Um, and I don't think that same sentiment is on something at like, uh, like a Senate seat. Um, it takes a lot, especially in Nebraska where we're going to be the last to do anything good, unfortunately. I'm talking about marijuana. Uh, But uh, so, you know, I think, yeah, I think to always keep it in context, but it's so hard to do because we're gaslit in so many areas of our lives. And I think people have just gotten so used to that. Yeah.
0: So is that the the source of the The fact that people just sort of accepted it, the source that the, the source of that sort of disconnect they have from outrage to seeing something that in theory should bother them, mm-hmm. does that come from just uh, this powerlessness, or what's the root of that
1: that feeling? Yeah, I don't know if it's about powerlessness. I think I think it's more about like practiced, um, uh, a practiced kind of disinterest, um, because so often when we're emotional or like when we let the human side of us come out that's uh rejected in so many different ways especially strong emotions like anger or like a deep sadness or like remorsefulness like we're not really allowed to demonstrate those things I know that is you know I know that specifically for black and brown people um that we're all criminalized because of those kind of things and I think White folks don't want to be treated like black and brown people, so they're not going to get themselves criminalized for a lot of those things, even though they have a lot of the power in those conversations. And so um, I don't think it's about powerlessness. I think it's about like groupthink and and what happens if I am angry and how often we're told that we shouldn't be you know there's this there's a more prevalent conversation in our society around gratefulness and gratitude um and you know just being happy with what we have which is meaningful and really necessary and it is inspired by a romantic way of thinking but i think there's places for those things and often i think we place it in in our lives in a way that supports our oppression
0: if you're just joining us i'm talking with activist jakeen fox about nebraska's political climate and how a shift in organizing could potentially change its future. What do you make of the process for replacing Senator Ben Sass's seat? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. So you are here today kind of to to connect us to something a little bit more tangible, to talk about organizing after defeat. Right? Sure. So... I you know I talk to a lot of candidates who run in the local and federal elections, and I, I guess one thing that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this interview was I know what a lot of the specific candidates what their vision is and what mm-hmm. their values are. I don't know that I feel like I have a cohesive idea of like what does the Nebraska Democratic Party want for Nebraska, mm-hmm. and you know I I like even when I think about the party infrastructure, one of the things I think about I made this joke on Twitter that people got mad about, which was. Uh, <laughs> Like, oh, uh, it was in November or October. And I said, oh, a lot of exciting options on the ballot this year, like the Republican or the blank spot. <laughs> and uh, like I think I saw more legalized marijuana now candidates than Democrats. Mm-hmm. So like, what what is the state of the Democratic Party right now in Nebraska?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's tough for me to um, to – to speak on behalf of. So I will speak as an observer. Um, And the state is in disrepair, I think. Um, There's been a lot of leadership change, obviously, which I'm really excited to see what Precious McKesson will do as the executive director of the party. Um, We still have racism in our party just like in any other party and i think a black woman leading this organization will be tough um and she'll have to fight a lot of things that wouldn't necessarily be you know uh, uh, as much of an issue if she wasn't black um and so i think there's going to be a long road to any kind of like sustainability in that party or sense of peace and organization um, because folks are going to have to get over the fact that she's black or not get over, but get behind um, the fact that she's black and support her in in that role. Um, What I believe about the Democrats as a beneficiary of their party platform um, is that they have a real opportunity to utilize this transition period, which everyone understands. This isn't something, you know, that just happened in house and it's, nebulous and folks are you know not really it's not transparent like no we understand that there is a huge transition happening and now would be a great time for us to utilize that energy to do something aspirational like talk in depth to um not just democrats but uh, people of all parties to better understand what nebraska wants i think there's a real opportunity for public engagement um and I hope that that is the route that they take in a a new and fresh way. We have to support black people. We have to support the most marginalized people. We have to have those conversations more than we ever have before. Um, And I think there is a chance for that. Um, But I think she has some opposition even in her own party. Um, So, you know, but I know she's a force to be reckoned with. So I'm really excited to see what she does. And I'm really excited to support her. Um, I think it's just confusing, you know, throughout the entire... You know, Nation, like, um, I think it's important for us to create our own platform, um, you know, not considering what Republicans are talking about because the way that they craft conversation is so undeniably based in like falsehoods and misinformation that if we're always responding to that, we'll always be at a one oh one level and we'll never be able to grow as a party because we're only responding to things that don't exist. And how can you grow if if we're only just doing conversation for gotcha moments? Which they'll provide in plenty because they're not that smart, um, but they are really connected to their base. Um, so you don't have to be smart. You can regurgitate information and that will be good enough. If I parrot the thing you said to me back to you, you will be pleased with me. Um, And I think the Democrats have opportunity to do the same thing. It doesn't have to be the smartest plan, but you can tell me what you heard from me and and say that's what I'm going to work on and then keep your promise. Um, And so I think that's the opportunity for us to kind of reject the conversations that Republicans are having and create our own in a way that's meaningful and engaging to the people that we want to vote. Because right now we aren't voting in the way that we could.
0: Right. Well, one of the phrases that came up in your answer there was what Nebraska wants has to be emphasized and has to be listened to and has to be implemented. I, that's a big question,
1: though. Like, what does Nebraska want? I mean, it's not like when we place a real question like in a ballot initiative and we see that Nebraska wants progressive things. We won the minimum wage ballot. Um, if the language wasn't confusing on some of the other opportunities that we had, um, I think we would get the real result. Like, if we're As strategic in how we place things on the ballot, if we're strategic in how we create accessible language, we're able to win on things that are important to people. We just haven't been successful in that because, again, we're crafting arguments that allow of Republicans and conservatives to have the upper hand. And it's, I think it's our chance and opportunity to say that we're, we're just going to create our own platform based on what we believe. And that's enough to bring us real support from our base.
0: Let's, let's get into some of the examples then. What are some of the times where you've seen the Republican narrative and the reaction to it be the defining moment of a candidacy as opposed to the issues?
1: The, the narrative around critical race theory and how that has propelled uh, conservatives onto um, school boards, public school boards, and how it has galvanized, you know, moronic, uh, you know, huge support from, you know, hillbillies across the state. Like um, it's been it was something mind boggling to see. Like, I don't know if I could get people that I think would make strong statements to just bus over to some random city like they were busing people to Omaha when we were having conversations even at the learning community about critical race theory and and bias education um, for our teachers. Like They were from who knows where and but they came with the with the you know again idiotic statements to say but they were passionate about their statements and that's a hard thing to do get people you know out of the middle of their day to just do some random you know stuff um i wish we could do it more you know that would be great but i saw the energy that they created around critical race theory and how they created a conversation that says you know this doesn't belong in elementary school this just belongs in college and we ran with that for some reason no this conversation actually does belong at elementary school because we shape who we are. That's who we are in elementary school. We need to understand bias. We need to understand how systems support um, privileged people as early as possible and create real curriculum that understands people's education levels and can kind of grow as they grow. But No, we should have started that education earlier, but instead we were defending ourselves as opposed to creating proactive statements about the necessity for diversity in our schools. The the success that happens when schools are more diverse, not only in their uh, population and student base, but in their curriculum as well. So that's one that really stood out to me because we we were defending their position in our statements. And I'm like, no, we should actually – Tell them how important this conversation is as early as possible. And that was tough for me to to bring to my side, quote unquote. You know, I got some backlash for that, but we're just allowing conservatives to create a a conversation that one shouldn't exist in the first place and, and one that's based in misinformation. It seems like it's uh, a fairly common
0: knee jerk among Democrats running in Nebraska, especially at like governor or mayoral level, to sort of say, "I used to be Republican, and I basically agree with my with my opponent on a lot of issues. We're basically the same, except here's where I differ." Right? Yeah,
1: scary. Like, who does that make comfortable? Because <laughs> it is not me, which is uh, representing your base, which is you know in, in Omaha specifically in in CD two, black. You know, like that's the base. So that brings me no comfort that you used to think in a a way that would oppress me like that doesn't excite me as as a person that's supposed to vote for you. Um, And I want to be considered. I want to be elevated in the conversations that we're having, not placated. And you hoping I'll understand because these people don't. Um, I want to understand. And if they don't, you know that I would prefer that because I'm in your party. I'm the person that's supposed to support you. And the amount of empathy that people think black and brown people are supposed to have for for candidates that, you know, used to, you know, be horrible people like that's not exciting. You know that that does not bring me to the polls. And I think that's one of our many opportunities is to create excitement around our candidates. And the blank spaces don't help, obviously. Uh, when Yeah. But uh, that was a tough part for me as well. I, I heard that a lot. And we're told to understand that and to be more empathetic. But I think time's up on that. I'm ready to be considered in a real way that makes me feel like a full human being. And if my party's not doing that, um, we've seen an exodus from ours as well. You know, and I don't think that's as considered. You know, there was a whole there was a huge conversation when Don Klein left the Democratic Party and he told people he was voting for Trump. Right. He, he made that.
0: This big celebration of how Republican he actually was, yeah, and that I I I've talked about this a bunch on the radio, which. The idea there seems to be that there's a Republican sort of law and there's a Democrat sort of law. And he says, well, I'm actually in ter- uh, I'm in favor of
1: Republican law now because you guys hurt my feelings. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't now like, you know, it was the wolf in sheep's clothing kind of thing. As sure. long as he had a D by his name, he could do whatever he wanted. And we were celebrating him because he was the highest, you know, Democrat in the land. Um To our detriment, to Democrats detriment to the people who would be voting Democrat if they weren't in jail or, you know, uh, out of jail, but still have to wait two years to get back onto the voter roll. So we centered those kind of Democrats. And again, we keep losing, uh, you know, unless they're doing Republican things. So I think. We should be more concerned with the people that look like me and are my friends that are saying that they're ready to leave the Democratic Party making statements like that on on Twitter and Facebook um, and me trying to find a real reason to bring them back. And that's hard to do um, because I'm not passionate about it. Um, I'll make a good argument because like, oh, God, (laughs) Um, because I don't think there's a lot of power in the independent position right now, but maybe there could be if that's what people need to do. Um, But I think there is potential. There's real systemic support in our nation for the Democratic Party um, if we just get on the right track. Yeah, well, I was thinking about that in November as well, which was
0: that overall things went pretty well for Democrats, uh, certainly at a federal level. But then, yeah, again, I see just not that many Democrats on my ballot at all. It's as someone who you know, just supports the idea that choices seem good, and so to not have uh, people on the ballot or to have more of one party who – you know, like the, the Legalized Marijuana Now Party, just by its name, is going to turn off a fair amount mm-hmm. of people who will have some kind of connotation with that. But it seems like there's a momentum there and then a the lack of a momentum on the Democratic side. So when you're talking about there's a, a weakness of the independents – is there that much of a strength to being a Democrat in Nebraska right now, or does that all have to sort of be built from scratch?
1: Um, I think there is a strength in in that there is an organized system um, to garner support for your candidacy as well as an organized system to get out the vote. So there are clear benefits to being part of the Democratic Party. Um, We did experience some success across the state, but also like think about what it took to experience that success, which was, again, a reaction to all of the harm that has happened in the meantime. And so for that to be sustainable, you again have to experience a lot of harm to have the same kind of momentum at the ballot. And that's why I think it's really important that we're more proactive um, on how we engage voters and how we create our own narratives and conversations, because otherwise the sustainable action we have is lose, 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 win one time, lose, 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 lose. And how many people are we losing really along the way and not just like metaphorically, like we're losing them to jail, to, to prison, to violence, to death. Um, And I don't think we're taking that seriously enough. Like we are nonchalant about the fact that Republicans are literally doing their best to take away our human rights. Like we should not have to have the kind of conversations that we're having about abortion, about gay marriage, about interracial marriage. Like they're rolling back, real rights and we kind of are going about our day in, in a in a strange way um, because we're so disconnected from those emotions of sadness and rage um, that make us more romantic and like you know human people um, and so I think to create a narrative is to affirm people as opposed to hope that you can spur them into action through reaction. So, what does it look like in
0: terms of like a campaign how do you how do you get people to get engaged on that level instead of what they have been trying?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a real public engagement strategy. it's not uh, it's uh, it's deep canvassing it's having long held conversations with people that are considered voters and the people that have an opportunity to vote, but haven't really been engaged on the issues, Um, we're still teaching people what days to vote. Like, we're really far behind on what it takes to have an educated, like, well-informed voter base. Scary statistic about America in general is that a majority of our Americans are reading at the sixth grade level. We have a long way to go when it comes to, like, a well-informed voter base, and I don't think we're putting enough effort into creating those people. So, I feel like that's why our schools are so important. Like we're not creating civically engaged and informed and empowered students which then become adults that can do this work well. We're losing those fights in in the most like important venues and battlegrounds and I need us to like be more serious about those things. <laughs> the the education issue That's a tough one to
0: solve, right? Because how do you fix the schools when also the schools are the scapegoat for a lot of the culture war right now and are actively being defunded by Mm -hmm. a lot of the power structures in the state? How do you do that? It's
1: to be unapologetic, like – conservatives make no apologies for saying like we're going to build a whole bunch of private schools we're going to make sure that we take over public schools so that we can defund them and create the institutions that we want to make we spend so much time apologizing for the routes that we want to take and hoping that everyone can come along with us when the reality is that everyone can't and if they can they'll find that on their own time but we have to do what's necessary i think about the The time in between uh, Biden's election and the midterms and how he could have just, you know, stopped student loans. You know, you could have just did that. Um, But instead, it's a it's a bait that he's bringing along and and will continue to bring along so that every election we have this little carrot dangling in front of us. Hmm. Do the right thing. Help as many people as possible. My first day as president. I'm doing everything I possibly can to make people's lives better. And people are just going to have to deal with that because I'm unapologetic about what it means to help people and what's the right thing to do. In the same way that conservatives are unapologetic about harming people um, and will make every excuse to do so um, and go home and and pretend to be good people. But we're calling them friends in, in the legislature. You know what I mean? Like, We have to be unapologetic. We have to be really serious about that. And once we find that muscle, um, I don't think things will be as hard as they seem to be. They're hard because we're trying to bring along people that have no intention of doing the right thing. I'm talking with activist Jakeen Fox about
0: romantic activism and Nebraska's political climate. Follow Riverside Chats on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. And stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, we would really love it if you'd give us a review. Today I'm talking with activist Joaquin Fox about Nebraska's political climate and how a shift in organizing could potentially change its future. Here's the rest of our conversation.
1: So what does a good civics education look like? I think it's one, the truth, um, which starts with how democracy was built, um, which was specific. And I think obviously the 1619 Project, if you haven't read that yet to do so, um, because it states the case for how democracy was created to deny black Americans, the rights that uh, white Americans were building for themselves. And so that's the truth. And so all of our systems were built specifically to disenfranchise black people and create that um, hierarchy of citizenship in America. Um, that's the truth. Uh, and so to begin there allows us to understand how things are the way that they are now. Uh, and that's, we should be unapologetic about the truth as well. So we start there. We understand that diversity is a pro, not a con, to how we do this work, and that the more that we're creating diverse communities in our institutions, the more successful we'll become. And there's so much data on all of that. And also, I think there needs to be a real effort to sustain teachers um, and, and, and do that, pay them well. Um, keep them happy in a way that affirms the kind of support uh, that we need for students. Um, And I think, again, like we can't take what happens with kids personally, like in my work with kids in in schools, as well as like mentorship. And there's a quote I'll say, I guess, um, that talks about how to be well adjusted in a sick society like basically is to become like a robot or to become like a horrible person like because we shouldn't be well adjusted we shouldn't be able to carry on um in our society knowing that all of these horrible things are happening and we're losing people along the way so like our children that are having tough times like we need to understand that like, that's them rejecting like this kind of like dehumanization that they're experiencing in our society that tells them like that, that they should be desensitized to the harm that they're experiencing. So I appreciate the truth that kids bring us, and I wish we as adults could do a better job of acknowledging that as well. Um, that's kind of like a philosophical answer to that question, but civics is a philosophy, sure. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think it's our opportunity to kind of understand that better. Well,
0: and one of the things in in understanding civics and trying to conceptualize the the promise of a democratic system to change, which is built in, right, is you, you need to sort of buy into the possibility of change for the better, right? Sure. And so I, I think about uh, – like Frederick Douglass has a great line about as he started to understand America when he was young, it felt like he was in a pit and he could see that he was in a pit, but mm-hmm. he couldn't see how to get out of that pit, mm-hmm. right? And so I think one of the real logistical concerns um, outside of all the culture war noise is when you confront a lot of the very ugly truths about the creation of the country, you also want to have a little bit of faith that there is the possibility of redemption mm-hmm. and the possibility that it doesn't have to be uh, you know, as bad as it was or that the roots don't have to always be there in tangible ways. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you keep that sort of that balance of – feeling like you're being intellectually and emotionally honest but not to the extent of i'm in a pit and i can't get out
1: Mm, um i don't think there i think we so often like try to create a balance that that makes us comfortable as opposed to just being unbalanced like this does suck a lot of the time you know what i mean and i think if we get comfortable like telling the truth and that's why i think there's a perspective to like romanticizing your personal life that allows us to be unbalanced in a way that doesn't like hurt us you know what i mean or demoralize us um you know as i do more work in our community i i will inevitably see that there is a lot of harm happening that i wasn't aware of before i started doing the work but the work is so important and so necessary that i have to do more of it um and so i see more things but i'm that much more connected to the people that I love and care about so the work is the sustaining factor um the work is the self-care like I think about that so often how people will kind of like uh consolidate their work as one part of their life and like I do this other thing for self-care well if you're not doing the work to take care of yourself you're not as passionate about it you're not as um, engaged in making it sustainable you have your way out if this work isn't sustaining you because you're making your own life better I think we're doing it wrong and so we're always looking for this kind of like escape clause from from like dealing with our emotions but like no go go deeper into that feeling understand it clearly be able to articulate it in a way that helps it change um i'm not scared to be like sad a lot of the times i'm not scared to be angry which is probably how my emotion comes out the most um i'm not scared of that because like it's righteous you know like Mm. it's it's necessary because like bad things are happening and so one plus one is two so in other words then there's an element of it that you don't have to work so hard on the intellectual
0: case for empathy because it should be emotionally rooted. Uh, that you should care about people, and by
1: caring about people, you want to improve everybody's sort of general status and well-being, right? Leah, like, what is coming out of you from seeing this experience, or glimpsing it, or having lived it? Like, what naturally comes out of your being when you are having this experience? And if it's not an emotion. Check on yourself, you know, like get help, you know, like if you have found a way to be disconnected from that experience, if you've been desensitized to that, like they're winning, you know, like they're, they're, they're winning. They're, uh, you are allowing that to be normal when it is not. You are allowing people to not have enough when there is surplus, you know, yeah. like. That's the reality of our situation. People don't have enough when they're surplus. I was just looking at Twitter today, um, and there's the Legacy Crossing Apartments, and people are getting kicked out, you know, in five to you know whatever amount of days right before Christmas. And a philanthropic entity is crowdsourcing money. That's insane to me. You could pay this, you know, and it would be done. But they're asking us, <laughs> who barely have enough to do this and and without like apology i think we need to talk about that more like we're disconnected from how outrageous that is go deeper into that rage which will allow us you know a natural humane reaction to an issue so part of the education then too that needs to be embracing your emotions,
0: maybe embracing your rage, but also there have to be direction and there needs to be some kind of guidance of where to put that. Because when people embrace their rage, I think also they end up on crazy internet forums and that leads <laughs> to bad stuff too, right? Mm. I guess the, the question is, how do, you, how do you ensure that there's enough guidance and support for people to find healthy ways to channel their anger or emotions? Uh, because I think you know, there's, there's anger and also there's just despair and those can both be overwhelming in unhealthy mm-hmm. ways too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like for me, like when I engaged with Community activism and advocacy in the first place. It was right after Trayvon Martin was killed um, and George Zimmerman got off. Like when he got off, I was outraged and sad and had to understand my place in the world differently, because I know I would have reacted in the same way that Trayvon reacted to this man that had assumed authority over my existence. And I probably wouldn't be here today if I was in the same situation. And so I had to figure out what was already happening in our world that made sense. And so I asked that question to the people that I cared about and cared about me and I was able to find an organization the Urban League of Nebraska Young Professionals where I dove deep into that organization and a year later was the president of um, because I channeled that um, that outrage into what I felt was most effective at the time and I think the more we're connected to people the better sense of how our rage looks collectively or how our emotion whatever emotion that is looks in society um i think what happens with with folks that go down those dark paths like QAnon, is that they are isolating themselves based on that emotion as opposed to going deeper into a felt community or community that is in front of them so how do i they're escaping into something where they can have that anonymity where they can have um where it seems like rage is acceptable um And it doesn't turn into anything else but more rage. Um, My community allows me to have an emotion and that turn into an action that collectively um, elevates our experience. And so I just had to ask... and also I had to trust, you know what I mean? Like I already had to sen- had to have a sense uh, and a perspective of what good work could be. And so we have so many, because I'm a student of history, we have so many great examples of what that looks like. So it's already well-documented, already well-written, at least for my community, about what it looks like to turn this thing into a healthy thing. Because unfortunately, for 500 years, we've had to do that. And so it's well-documented about what that can look like for my community um, and I think for a lot of communities that have been vulnerable, we have to look to our documentation, which is why it's so important for, for journalism, for uh, vulnerable communities to be archiving their experiences, because this will be the record. Um, and if we're not writing our own record, someone else is going to do it for us, and it's not going to be correct. Well, yeah, the record today is probably on TikTok and Twitter, right? Yeah, and, and look how, you know, look how that reaches you know, global, it's global reach, and we'll, we'll see what happens with Twitter. But yeah, like the document is there. But even those things, I don't know if anyone's saving all of their tweets, you know what I mean, when they're yeah. doing incredible work like that. But I think in the new ways that we experience technology and the opportunity we have to archive and record our lives um, and document the reality. Uh, think of it as like a time capsule like if you think of your life that way you're able to engage with it in a more like romantic sense where nothing is innocuous because all of these things are born out of something so i'm documenting this experience because today like this food made me feel so good but I had to feel good through the food because this other thing was happening that I needed to recover from. So I'm documenting this, and it becomes a cultural record, and I'm able to share that in a way that is healing for other people as well. So I'm creating a, a, a balm for my community through my own experience, um, and I think we have to be more thoughtful and serious about who's writing these things for us, and if they're not, like, we need to. If you're just joining
0: us, I'm talking with activist Jakeen Fox about Nebraska's political climate and what its future might look like. Let us know what you think. Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Yeah, that seems like a way to sort of to connect it back to where we started, which was a distrust in the people who are in power, the people in some of the institutions of the government to make good decisions. And because we don't trust them, we don't really expect a whole lot from them. And because of that, then maybe our outrage is kind of disconnected, right? So, your uh political mission, right? The idea is to enhance community in those ways, to find outlets for trust, and to make them into sort of a movement that feels welcoming and also feels like it can achieve something, as opposed to just a place to say what makes you mad, right? It's mm-hmm. also how are we doing something with that we're building from it? Is that how we get to uh, the convention, right? Because you're you're starting a, a political convention as well. Yeah, is that is um, that connected?
1: Well, I, I think it is one because again, like I'm very serious about the idea of like how we archive our own experience. And in Nebraska specifically, we've had a lot of, like, young professional conversations. And what does it mean to be a young professional in Nebraska? What are the things we care about? You know, um, in 2017, uh, the Urban League of Nebraska Young Professionals, in partnership with the Omaha Chamber, released the Black YP survey. Um, which was kind of our time capsule for you know recommending Omaha as a place to live and work, and we discovered that Black YP's were five to six times less likely to recommend Omaha as a place to live and work. Um, and how do we record like our our agenda? How do we record? our like perspective because again people are making decisions for us but no one has asked us Um, and no one seems really interested in doing that except when it's beneficial in 2020 you know they were all over the black YPs. you know oh my gosh we apologize for everything that we've ever done like how can we be of assistance well now we're in 2023 about to be and none of those promises have been kept um, so what's our opportunity, one, to create an alternative for ourselves? So I think that's the most important part, like how we place our rage or our other emotions is to create an alternative that soothes us um, in a real way. So the traditional thing isn't working. The traditional party might not work. I can create this thing here that allows us to do the public engagement that we wanted someone else to do. I'm just going to do it. Right. I'm just going to ask us what we think. Um, and this is in this again like being a student of history in 1973 they created the uh, they had the first national black um, political convention so all the superstars of the civil rights era were there. They gathered in uh, Gary, Indiana and they created a in-depth uh, policy agenda um, that was focused on issues like um, climate change, you know housing economic development. They went through all the issues and they said this is the thing that we all can agree on and we go back to our respective places um, this is the thing we'll use as a guide and that's what I want us to be able to create um, as black white peas like when people say that they are thinking about our opinion or that they are interested in it we we have a product for them and we can prove it and it's void of of tokenism um because our goal is to have 500 to 600 black yps um from across the state representing both rural and urban areas um and these are going to be the things that we find agreement on and it'll be a nonpartisan um event but it's just about what's our position here what can we go back and say this is what we all have decided together in a way that no one really does anymore
0: yeah i know i i was just thinking about our uh our political discourse in Nebraska is like, oh well, now it's you know national eat red meat day. Mm-hmm. the Governor just decided. It's oh, <laughs> pretty far away from you know what do the people want? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Like to show a real interest in in each other, like in a way that again soothes us. Like that's what everyone's kind of craving, and if we can't get it from certain parties or certain entities, I, I'm I'm not comfortable just not having it because um, I feel entitled to. Uh, to be interested in, because I feel like one, I'm an interesting person, and I know a lot of them, and and, and a well informed person. So not only am I interesting, but I have a perspective that I think should be respected. And I know so many Black YPs that that feel the same, and are you know even smarter than I am, and are willing to share those things, but. They're placated and pacified in whatever roles that they're in or they feel so isolated being the only black person in a certain area that their voice isn't heard in the way that it should be. Um, So, again, we're going to create our own voice and we're going to do that in a way that the black community is known for, which is a collective voice. We don't always agree on every issue, but at the base, we have found agreement. And I've seen that so many times in our community, even in my own generation.
0: Yeah, so it's it's interesting also that the the we we were talking earlier that civics is basically a question of philosophy, mm-hmm. politics is a question of philosophy, and philosophy is going to be kind of messy and by its nature is conversational. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you have dialectics that you're setting up and whatever else. Exactly. And so to do that outside of the space of the political sphere is a pretty significant failing of the political sphere. Mm-hmm. that those The conversations there are, you know, I saw a Facebook post about litter boxes in schools, mm-hmm. and then you have to organize something now to even have these kinds of conversations, to ask these questions, to even get in these arguments. Mm-hmm. Because it's just, we don't really have a forum for real philosophical debate. In theory, it's Congress, but it's not like they're debating stuff on no. the floor, right? Mm-hmm. So part of the disconnect uh, seems to be rooted from that, that when we look at the people who make decisions we don't see the decision-making process as any kind of actually intellectually curious uh, exactly. or philosophically adventurous uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, I was going to say adventure, but that's the wrong word. But, you know, it's not a fight. It's not anything, really. It's just sort of like the, the procedures performance. and parties. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Artifice. Um, so for you, then, part of the way to, to create the reconnect with your emotions and then with reality and then with power – has to come from, all right, well, they're not doing it, so let's find a way to do it ourselves. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. community is going to
1: be the new way to sort of start that process, you think? Yeah, not only that, but, like, I feel like it's performance because – it's conflict in a way that doesn't actually engage with curiosity. So I'm not afraid of conflict by any, I'm actually conflict forward. Um, (laughs) And that scares a lot of people because like the, the point of conflict for me is to get comprehension as opposed to enforce a a line of thought. So if I'm arguing with you, it's because maybe I believe you truly don't understand where I'm coming from. So I need to get this across or I'm testing where your thought is coming from and how actually strong you are in that emotion or feeling or idea. So our, our exchange uh, looks like conflict, but is really like this uh, exercising curiosity and people are not curious in that way anymore um, because they have not been heard for so long. Um, and I think there are levels to that, obviously, like, I don't want to hear your racist, like, statement. So, yeah, I'm not curious about that at all. I'm actually well trained in that because that's the experience of black and brown people in this, in this you know, society um, is to be well informed on the levels of power and how we navigate those things so we can live longer. Um, but I am curious uh, in my own party, like, what people aren't getting and how I can better establish a sense of empathy and communication. Um, and so... And the black community specifically, like we do a lot of things that look harsh and and look like conflict. Um, But that's kind of the hip hop of our culture. Like that's the that's what makes it so interesting and engaging and sustainable is because we are always curious about those things. One of my like pop culture references was when everyone was so intrigued and like so excited about Bridgerton. And uh, everything was so passive aggressive and you couldn't raise your voice over a certain, um, you know, decibel and people were just like eating it up. And I was like, this looks like the worst way to live imaginable. Like if you do one wrong thing in this society, like you could be ostracized. And But I saw like people like really enjoying that. And I was like, this is this is our politics. Like this is what we are doing and we're bringing this like way of life into so many other facets um where it didn't even belong at their parties but um now we're bringing it into politics where the the thought of like doing the wrong thing could could ostracize you forever um you know or uh, cancellation the thought of cancellation um that we've created which uh You know, conservatives have co-opted and it's not the same uh, definition anymore. Um, But just that idea of like our community, specifically black people, have lived in conflict for so long that we're able to engage in curiosity in a real way. that I don't think a lot of other uh, communities have uh, have understood or gotten to do um, because they benefit so often from the passive aggressive nature uh, of politics um, and society in general. That's really interesting. And I think it's we're, we're running out of time. I'd love to
0: continue to talk about some of that stuff, but uh, I only have so long. So tell me, for people who do want to continue that conversation, who do want to learn more, where should they go to hear about any of your uh, – your, either your current uh, – whatever you're currently working on, whatever's in the works, where, you know, where should they go? Oh man,
1: um I guess I should start using uh, my uh, uh, social media for better means. Yeah, you can you can um, say
0: links to social media here and I will not kick you off.
1: Um yeah, so I've changed my name on Twitter and IG to the Black Romantic. Um, that's uh, a little bit of branding for some of the projects that I have coming up, how we live a more romantic life in activism and advocacy, um, understanding that nothing's innocuous. Everything has a real meaning. And once we understand and establish how all of our acts, not only individually uh, impact us, but collectively we are start to engage in a more romantic way of being and not romantic in the sense of like love relationships, but like, how do I see myself in perspective and what it means to enjoy and, and do things deeply? That's what I think about romance. Like, oh, you've taken this, you know, packet of noodles, which I used to, you know, when I was homeless, like that was a delicacy to me. You know what I mean? Like, and I was able to, like, create like a beautiful meal that made me feel safe and so I romanticized my way of living um, by not being ashamed of it, but like going more deeply into this idea. And how do we go all the way? How do we dive deep in any aspect of our lives? I just feel like we're so flighty and like scared to commit. And that's a sense that I want to reestablish in ourselves because That's why we're not doing more human things um, and we're not acting as humanely. So that was a long answer to say my name is the Black (laughs) Romantic on on, uh, on, uh, IG and Twitter and Joaquin Fox, J-A space capital K-E-E-N-F-O-X on Facebook.
0: And you said you're writing a series of essays about this?
1: Yeah, um, it's like my lifelong kind of goal. I, I was thinking about how to be the next level of activist and advocate that I want to be and ensuring that I always pass the baton and create space for younger folks that have the energy to do um, the conflict on the front lines knowing that I'm I can do it if necessary but like where my heart is is in the written word and how I can make sure that my ideas are accessible Um, and so I think this is the the right path to take so I'm going to take some time um, we'll see how long it takes. <laughs> um, you know, I, I dream about a sabbatical where I can just go into the woods and write for a <laughs> yeah. year and come back, and it's great. Um, but we'll see. Um, we'll see how that goes, yeah.
0: Well, let us know when you're ready and come back on and plug it. This is okay. fascinating, and thank you so much for talking to me again. Yeah,
1: I appreciate the time. Thank you so much.
0: Riverside Chances is a production of KIOS 915 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by the real Zebos, And our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.